0: Is kind of cheap when it uh, comes to following Jesus and obeying His commands. It's always easy to say you're going to follow Him, but whenever He tells you to step out in faith, that's when it becomes difficult, and that's when we find out if you really believe in Him or not. Today, we're going to finish up our series on uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. And we said that this is the key thing that God created us for two things. One, He created us to love Him, have a relationship with Him, and then the second thing is He created us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we're supposed to spend this life learning how to love one another better, and uh, we carry that with us into eternity. Today, I'm going to focus kind of on the world, and the world is really on my heart because I've been um, in Haiti for the past week. I got back Friday, uh, Thursday night and um, just been thinking about my brothers and sisters down there. Now, today, I want to talk to you um, about this idea of loving your wor- world, and I read some excerpts from a book called Rich, Free, Miserable, The Failure of Success in America, And it's by a guy named John Brueggemann. And he asked this question, why, when we have so much in America, more than any other country in the world, why are we still unsatisfied? And he basically answers the question by saying that in our relentless pursuit of more, that we're just destroying our souls. And when we have destroyed souls, we don't know how to have relationships with other people. We're destroying relationships as well. And he begins the book with a story about climbers of Mount Everest. And I thought this was interesting because I've talked about Mount Everest before. But he says that climbing Mount Everest has no social benefit whatsoever. Um, It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't save any lives. It doesn't make the world a better place. He says that climbing Mount Everest is a purely ego-driven pursuit. People climb Mount Everest for one reason, one reason only. You know why that is? Just to say, I did it. And they will spend Sometimes thousands of dollars. The cheapest one that I've seen where you go yourself and you're pretty much, you know, guaranteed to die is about $10,000. If you get the nicest Sherpa guides, you can spend sixty dollars to $100,000 and nine months of your life trying to prepare to go up uh, and climb Mount Everest successfully. Because you've got to establish camps and you've got to do all of these different things, all kinds of training. And he says, <clears throat> it's purely an ego-driven pursuit And people go to crazy expenses to do this. And one out of every 10 climbers of Mount Everest die on the mountain. And most of their bodies are still up there. And he tells a story about this guy named David Sharp. May sixteenth, two 2006, David Sharp had spent all this money, done all of this planning. He was climbing Mount Everest and he got injured. And this was a bad leg injury. So bad that when people came by him, they're thinking this guy's going to die. And they left him to die. Forty people passed him knew he was going to die, and they kept going up the mountain and they left him there to die because they said, your problem's not our problem. We're worried about what we're going to do with our future. We don't care about what you're going to do. The dude died on the mountain that day because these people were more concerned about their goals, their agenda, than reaching out to someone else. And, and Brueggemann calls this the Everest syndrome. He says, we've got such self-centered lives, my goals, my retirement, my plans, that we're missing people all around us right now who are dying on the side of the road. They're injured and we miss them because we're not paying attention. And so I'd say that that's a pretty serious indictment, not just on America, but on American churches as well, because I think we're not loving our neighbors as we love ourselves because we don't know about our neighbors. <clears throat> Our creator did not make us to live lives that were for ourselves God has this big mission in life and according to jesus. There are two reasons He was asked what's the number one reason you're alive to love god number two reason you're alive is to love your neighbor as yourself So life is all about this learning to love god and learning to love others And if you want to know how serious jesus was look at this verse in mark eight thirty-five. Jesus is speaking and he says if you insist on saving your life, you will lose it Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. Until you learn to give your life for a plan and a purpose greater than your life, according to Jesus himself. You may say that I'm narrow-minded. All I'm doing is quoting Jesus. So the founder of our religion, the founder of Christianity is saying, you won't know what it's like to live until you learn um, to give your life away. So what he's telling us, Psychiatrists have already discovered this what god has said thousands of years ago Psychiatrists understand that significance doesn't come from status. It doesn't come from sex. It doesn't come from salary significance comes from service It's only when we begin to serve others and give our life away something greater that we know what it means to live (coughs) So, how do we know how to love the world? That's what we're going to talk about today We got to start at the beginning so here's the beginning. Everybody is loved by God. Everybody in the world is loved by God. Everybody is created by God. By God, everybody is created in the image of God, but not everybody is in the family of God. You have to choose to get into the family of God. The Bible says that we become children of God through adoption, through faith in Christ. And just like in the physical life, there's only two ways you can get into a family. Either you're born physically into the family or you're adopted into the family. In the spiritual life, there's only two ways. And the Bible talks about both of these as being um, uh, about salvation. You can be adopted into the family of God and you're born again into the family of God. And you have to make a choice about these things. These are symbols of salvation. Um, once you're in God's family, then you become a part of his plan to reach the world. And all of all of history is moving toward this climax. History is not circular. I mean, we do repeat a lot of the same s- mistakes that we make all the time, but history isn't circular. You don't get to go back and do yesterday over. Yesterday's a part of your past. History is linear, and history is moving towards a climax. And there was a beginning of history, there's gonna be an end of history. And this middle time is when God has this plan to save the world, and he wants us to be a part of it. <clears throat> and it really, um, it really took off around Christmas 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ invaded the planet, and he, he came on this search and rescue mission to try to find people who were lost and show them how they could get back to God. And so this whole idea of Christmas is just a continuation of God's search and rescue mission that he expects us to be a part of. The moment you become a part of God's family, that's the moment God gives you the same mission. You're inducted into his mission when he was here. In John 17, verse 18, Jesus is praying. You've heard the the Lord's prayer, our Father who art in heaven. That's not the Lord's prayer, that's a model prayer. If you want to hear Jesus praying, you read chapter chapter 17 of, of the book of John. And in verse 18, he says this, in the same way, he's talking to Father, God the Father, he says, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. Jesus is praying and he's saying, God, you sent me and now I'm commissioning everybody who becomes my follower to do the same things that I did in the world. When Jesus was here on the earth, he did some things we couldn't do. He uh, lived a sinless life and died on the cross as a substitute for people who were were dead in their trespasses and sins. We can't do that one. He healed all kinds of people who came to him. We can't do that one. But we can do what Jesus did. He did five things. There are five purposes in the Bible. Five things that a church is supposed to be about. Five things that an individual Christ follower is supposed to be about. Five things. And these are the things you're supposed to do with your life. You're supposed to worship God. You're supposed to fellowship with other believers. You're supposed to evangelize, which means tell people about how they can get to God. You're supposed to disciple and you're supposed to have some type of ministry. evangelism fellowship discipleship and ministry it's what jesus did and so whenever i uh, am supposed to follow him i'm supposed to do my mission is i'm supposed to do what jesus did it's real simple this this isn't a hard thing to 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 figure out it may be hard to do but it's not hard to figure out what we should do so if i'm supposed to do what jesus did where am i supposed to do that well first of all is everywhere but mainly wherever you are You do it locally, you do it in your neighborhood, you do it in your city, you do it in your state, you do it in your, um, in your country, and you do it in the world. You're supposed to have this thing where we're supposed to do those five things, worship, evangelism, fellowship, discipleship, and ministry. We're supposed to do those every day of our lives, everywhere we are, but we're not supposed to keep it to ourselves. Jesus said we're to go to all the world. So God has a plan for your life, and, and once you know, you must go. Once you know God's plan, you have to go, you have to answer uh, God's call. It's what the Bible teaches. Instead Instead of spending all my time and energy on my personal Mount Everest, I'm supposed to do what Jesus did. True Christ followers, you look at their lives and they emulate Jesus. And so I want you to turn to somebody. I want you to say, God has a plan for your life. Don't miss it. Look at the other person. Say, God has a plan for your life don 't miss it, <clears throat> The last part of that insinuates that you can miss it, and many people do because're they 're worried about their own Mount everest, and God says, "Now my plan is bigger, my plan is harder, my plan is so much more fulfilling, and my plan will help bring about the salvation of the world and um uh, <laughs> It's not enough just to be saved. Let me read you this verse. That's the next answer there. But this verse from Isaiah says this. Now the Lord says to me, it isn't enough for you to be merely my servant. You must do more than lead back survivors from the tribes of Israel. I have placed you here as a light for other nations. You must take my saving power to everyone on the earth. It involves the whole planet. So God's plan is bigger than just you, but he wants you to be plugged into his plan." God has commissioned you to take the good news to everyone on earth, and you're going, man, that's a big mission. No, that's an impossible mission, humanly speaking, in human power. The only way we can do this is with God's power. It's like going to the moon. In 1963, just for kicks, how many of you were alive in 1963? I wasn't, but I was 64, so I came right after that. I wasn't saying that y'all are older than me, but you're older than me, if you were alive in 63. Um, In 1963... John F. Kennedy stood down at Rice University in Houston and he said, we're going to go to the moon. What do you think people thought when he said that? It was crazy because physically we didn't have any clue how to get there. Scientifically, we'd not made anything that could get there. We had no idea what was going on. But he said, by the end of the decade, we're going to go to the moon. It was technologically impossible. Didn't know the math, didn't know the science. But he said, we're going to do it. He made a decision. Now, here's here's something you need to realize. Uh, never confuse the decision-making process with the problem-solving process. You don't, make a de- you don't solve all the problems before you make a decision. Let me give you an example. Um, our, uh, we just paid off our note. Uh, our church is debt-free. And, um, and we were going to do the paperwork today, but we didn't get it. We'll get it this week from Elkhart State Bank, so we're going to burn it next week. Uh, <clears throat> a little over three and a half years ago, um, we did this whole thing called Building a Great Life. And, and about 30 individuals said, we're going to pay over and above the tithe and we're going to try to get out of debt. And, and people in here, people in this room, people in this church pulled me aside and they said, you're nuts. It's not going to happen. And, and friends of mine, they've told me later. They don't tell me at the time. Sometimes they'll tell me much, much later. They'll come up and they'll go, man, every time you tell us we're going to do something, I think you're crazy. There's no way this church could do that. But in a little over three and a half years, um, if you count the new land that we bought over here, we still call it new land. It's not new land. But over here with the, the extra parking lot and all that stuff, in, in three and a half years, this little church has paid off almost $300,000 uh, in debt. And so as of this moment, we are debt free. And that, the glory goes to God. But, but here's the thing <clears throat> when, whenever I felt like God was telling us that we needed to be debt free, did I have all the answers? Absolutely not. But did I believe that God wanted to do something in us so that only he would get the glory? That's the only way God works. He doesn't want to do things that you and I can get the glory for. He wants to do things that bring glory and honor to him. And so um, when we we make a decision that we're going to get out of debt or we're going to do anything, we're going to go to Haiti. When we started this church 11 years ago, I was telling the folks this last week in church uh, in Haiti, When we started the church, I had no idea. I didn't, I, if you'd have asked me right then to point to Haiti on a map, I wouldn't have known where Haiti was. I knew the, the general area, but I didn't know anything about Haiti. It wasn't in 2010 when the earthquake hit Haiti that I knew that I was supposed to go. And how would I know? How would I possibly have known in 2002 when we started the church that we would take over 40 individuals in four years to a place called Haiti, they would spend their money. And the Haitians ask us stuff like this. Why would you spend your money to come over here and play with kids (laughs) or or work? You know, we go over and we do a lot of work, but we play with kids and they think we're crazy to come over there. And we say, we just want to help. We want to be a part of this. Nobody knows in the decision-making phase about all of the answers. You're nuts if you think that you're going to get all the answers before you start It's like somebody saying... Well, I'm going to figure out marriage before I get married. (laughs) Anyone try that? I mean, I I read more books, I think, than anyone about marriage before I got married, and, and I've learned more in the last 22 years than I learned in all those books, right? Anybody give a testimony? You don't have marriage figured out, right? How many of you said, I'm going to learn how to raise kids before I have kids? Yeah, right. You make a decision, and then you spend the rest of your life figuring out the solutions to the problems. That's what happens. So when God says that he wants you and me to go to the world, we don't say, oh, God, you've got to give me all of the answers before I can start reaching out to the world. No, you say, God, you said it. I'm going to do it. I don't know how, but I believe you have power, and I'm going to go where you tell me to go. And so we start with Haiti, and we never know how many How our influence in Haiti... I I told the Haitians this um, when we were back there in in July. There's going to come a day... There's actually probably more Christians percentage-wise in Haiti than there are in the United States now. And there's going to come a day where their children or their grandchildren may need to come tell my grandchildren or great-grandchildren about Christ because of the way our nation is going. They have nothing. I drove through places in Haiti that I'd never seen before. And and there's still so much work to do. And I've told you this: we will not finish the work in my lifetime. We'll finish Mariani. Hopefully, we finish that church in a year. And I got to see Pastor Valco. He's the pastor at Mariani. And I got to give him some pictures. Alex had taken a bunch of photos, and I handed them to him. He was blown away that Alex had given him pictures and of people in his church. And so he's going to go out to Mariani and just distribute them. And I've told him, I said, we will keep coming. I told him again when I saw him, we will keep coming till your church is finished, because he's kind of discouraged. We started on his church four years ago. And we got the school finished. We've got the, first, uh, the, the, the worship center and then the balcony and the walls are up, but we don't have a roof on it yet. And he's kind of discouraged. They're still meeting in a tent. And I said, we're not going to quit. And there's other churches, uh, not other churches, there's, there's Americans. People in the world think that we have ADD when it comes to helping the world. Because when a big disaster helps, Americans flood in. And then the longer the cleanup process goes, the fewer and the fewer Americans there are. And so I was asking about Praying Pelican that we go with. And everywhere that, that I would go and I would talk to somebody about Praying Pelican, Praying Pelican has a very good reputation because what they do is they establish a relationship with a local church. And all of the ministry is focused, uh, funneled through that local church. So through Va- Pastor Valco, we don't do anything in Mariani without Pastor Valco saying, yes, we want to do that. Um, when we're at Cote Plage, uh, which is where Pastor Samson is, we don't do anything at Cote Plage without Pastor Samson being involved. Anywhere we go, there's a local pastor, which I think is smart, because they don't want us to come fix things for them. What they want us to do is come work alongside them to build up their lives and build up the kingdom of God. When they see that, then they have a different idea of, about Americans. And so we have this impossible task But you don't worry about all of the answers to the problems. We'll worry about those. Let God take care of those. We just make the decision. We're going to go. Now, it was such a big deal that when they said we're going to go to the moon, that they divided it into three stages, three phases that they were going to go through to figure out how we were going to get to the moon. Um, The first one was the the Mercury phase, then the Gemini phase, and then the Apollo phase. Um, Y'all remember those three different phases? And the Mercury phase involved seven astronauts and six different flights, and the whole goal of the Mercury was just this: Can we put a dude out in space and can he survive? They spent less than three days total in space, and they figured out, yep, he can survive. We can bring him back. That's good. So then they moved to phase two. Phase two, they uh, they went to um, what did I just say that was. The Gemini phase. In the Gemini phase, we were actually trying to see how long a dude could stay in space. Can we do the things in space that we need to do on the moon? So can he stay there long enough? Can a man survive in space long enough? Can we dock? Can we undock from the space, you know, all of the capsules and all of these things? And and they did a few little experiments just trying to see if if human beings could survive in space that long. And they come back and we figured out, hey, we can do that. And then they move into the third phase, which was the Apollo phase, and that's when they actually sent somebody to the moon. <coughs> literally we sent someone to the moon they played with space rocks they did some experiments and they came home and we've done all of these different missions and and if you think back to 1963 before any of the technology was available what a crazy thing to say what a huge mission to go to the moon well i'm going to tell you that our mission is bigger than going to the moon and it has such bigger ramifications for eternity because can you imagine standing before God? He's, he's on his throne. All of the angels of heaven and all of the millions of people that will be there are praising God. And, and some dude comes up and goes, I stood on the moon. God says, I spoke it into existence. And, and he says, I gave my son so that you little bitty human beings could have a way to get back to heaven. Our mission is so much bigger. Look what Jesus said, one of the last things he said on the planet before he left. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Once you become a believer, it is your mission to reach the world. That's what history is about. God is creating a family. And and when all of the people who are going to enter God's family enter God's family, then we're going to go into this new phase called heaven. We don't have a whole lot of idea what that's about, but we know it's going to be incredible. We know we're going to be reunited with other believers. Um, But, you know, Jesus said he was going to come back. Why hasn't he come back in 2,000 years? It's because the mission isn't completed yet. His family hasn't grown all the way to, uh, to its full potential yet. He said, I'm going to come back. And look what he says in Matthew 24, 14. The good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. The end of the world isn't going to happen until everyone who's going to hear and is going to respond to Jesus hears and responds to Jesus. And and this is is not just conjecture because I want you to see what what happens whenever God says this. Look at Isaiah 14, 24. When God says something, here's what, this is what backs it up. The Lord of heaven's armies has sworn this oath. It will all happen as I have planned. It will be as I have decided. God says, if I make a statement, I will bet my reputation on it. I'll stake eternity on my reputation. Like I said, we don't know a lot about the future, but in Revelation, it tells us, gives us just a little bit of picture of heaven. It says this in Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased men Uh, For God, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. How many tribes are going to be in heaven? All of them. There's going to be representatives from all of them. Not everybody's going to heaven. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Uh, Revelation 7, 9 says this, "'After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and every tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands.'" These four categories are kind of interesting to me. Nations, tribes, people, language. They're not by accident. There are about 13,000 people groups in the world. Most of the major groups have Christianity in them. All of the major languages have Christianity in them. Um, The Bible's in all the major languages of the world. Most people don't realize this, but in China, uh, within 20 years, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States right now. There are already 80 million born-again believers in China right now. Some of the countries that we've been going to, we really don't need to go to them anymore because they're almost all Christian like Kenya. Kenya is 90% Christian. It's more Christian than America is. They should be sending missionaries to us. Korea is about 50% Christian. But here's a dirty little secret. There are 3,800 people groups in the world who've never heard about Jesus. 3,800 people groups that don't have somebody who speaks their language. They don't have a Bible to tell them about Christ guess who God wants to use to reach them? You and me. Oh, well, how's that going to happen? I don't know. But I know when, when I go and do what God calls me to do, he may use someone there to touch someone else. I met a young man. He came up to me uh, one day, just talking to him. I found out that he spent, from Haiti, he spent uh, eight weeks in Maine. And, uh, I'm going, wow, how did that happen? He told me this crazy story about how he got to go to Maine. You never know when you go do what God calls you to do, who God might touch through you that then reaches the world. And, and you may say, well, I'm just average. Well, guess what? God only uses average people. He doesn't use superstars. There weren't, there's not enough superstars around. He doesn't use perfect people because there's not any perfect people. <clears throat> Every church that's been started for the last 2,000 years has been started by ordinary people who believed in an extraordinary God. And they said, God, we're going to trust you even if we don't know how. We're going to trust you if we don't know why. We're just going to give you our lives, and we're going to trust you. So let me ask you a couple of questions. One is, will you answer the call to take the the good news of Jesus around the world? That's a yes or no question. You don't have to have to, uh, have all the answers. That's just a yes or no question. So this is what I'm going to have you write on the back of your card in a minute. Will you say yes to God? I will go wherever you call me, whenever you call me to go. <clears throat> and then the second thing is, um, I, I actually put an extra slide in. Psalm 67.2 says this. Do I have that on there, Mike? There it is. Um, send us around the world with the news of your saving power and your eternal plan for all mankind I'm going to ask you to take that verse, um, that's the Living Bible Translation, so if you want to look it up later and, and memorize it, and kind of make that your, your life verse. If you've been struggling with knowing what you should do in your life, um, maybe you should start doing what Jesus did, and, and you can use this, and you can have meaning and purpose. And if you'll say to God, I will go wherever you send me, you may be surprised in 10 years where all he has sent you, and the opportunities that you've gotten to, uh, to speak for him. Um, When Pastor Sampson asked me a year ago if I would preach for his church, I was like, "Sure," because if you ask me far enough in advance, I'll say yes to just about anything. You know, I don't didn't really think that through. Had to uh, had to prepare six messages the week that I went to Haiti, and uh, man, that'll wear you out. And it's so difficult to to preach. To people that you don't speak their language like I love speaking here and I can tell you know even if I don't if you don't get my jokes I can still make fun of that and y'all laugh but you know you say something to them and then Armando would be tr- uh, translating and and I couldn't tell for the first two days I'm like man I don't know if anybody's even hearing a word that I'm saying and then people started coming up and they started saying thank you you blessed me you blessed me and then Armando starts saying man you're you're making an impact um, and, and I want to I thank those of you who prayed. Um, they were touched when I told them that there were people praying at every service that we were getting together and Then um, I posted last uh, Wednesday. I got really sick and i 've been sick since then. Um, but I thought it was kind of sweet because uh, Cote plage if you see on my, if you happen to see something that posts on my wall and it says M-E-B-S-H, that 's the church in in Haiti. It stands for Missionary Evangelical Baptist of Southern Haiti. Um, but they put on there, we are praying for your healing. And and they don't, some of, whoever was typing it didn't know English real well, and so they get maybe some of the words out of order and things like that. But they, you know, we became friends that day, and, and people um, have committed to pray for our church from Haiti. They'd never met you, and they may never get here. I, I asked for volunteers. I asked for 100 of them to come back with me to teach y'all how to worship, and there were some hands. They did, they did volunteer for that. Um, because, man, when they worship. And, and I don't mean it's crazy. I'm not talking about bouncing off the wall stuff, but I'm talking about on their faces. You have an idea that they are getting a glimpse of heaven, of what heaven's gonna be like. And, and they may not have a home to go to and they may not have enough food, but they understand the joy of the Lord. And it's something I think we're missing. Everybody that goes to Haiti, that's one of the things they come back and they say, when you sit there and you worship with those folks and you see the joy that cannot be described by this world, it changes you. It makes you realize that that we um, we take a lot of stuff for granted. Um, this air conditioning, we take that for granted. Um, six a.m. last week, there were thirty-five hundred Haitians packed into this church praising and worshiping the Lord. And there were about another five hundred that came at, at the nine o'clock service, and then there were five to six hundred every night. And uh, Janie Janie went and got all my shirts pressed, so I had I had five different uh, shirts and a couple of suits. And man, I would just be Ringing, sweat by the time we were done. And I would have to go and hang things up, you know, and and all of that stuff. Um, But I thought these people will be there. And in fact, their conference doesn't finish till tonight. So they kept going. Even after I left, there was another guy that came in and preached from Thursday night through tonight. And those people are gonna be there and they're gonna be worshiping and they're gonna be serving. And what I want somehow is for our church to understand what worship is. Worship is not... Um, whether you like a song or not. Did you know that? If, if, you, if you go out today and you go, man, um, I enjoyed worship today, you kind of miss the point of worship because worship isn't about you. Worship is when I say to a being greater than myself, I honor you and I recognize that you have power and authority over me. Worship is about God the Father. It's not about you. So if if the music didn't move you today or if the sermon doesn't move you today, uh, sorry, um, part of the responsibility lies in you. Um, and, you know, and if we get up here and we do just horrible stuff and, you know, all of that, then yes, maybe we could take the blame. But if we're offering our best effort, um, then maybe you didn't prepare to see God today. And maybe you need to spend some time preparing before you come up here. Um, what happens on Sundays is, in your life, whether God speaks to you or not, may very, very well be tied into how much time you spent with God before you got here. Because there's, there's this two, there are two sides to worship. There is private worship. Jesus said, when you pray, go into your inner closet and close the door and pray to your Father in secret, and your Father will see and he will answer your prayers. When you prayed in secret, then you come out and and you can't wait to get to church and worship with other brothers and sisters. Those of you who are in small groups, you understand what I'm talking about. When you go there, you just get filled up. I know the ladies Bible study, the men's Bible study, my small group that we've had in my house, we just get filled up being with other Christians. And so maybe we need to spend a little more time privately worshiping before we come uh, worship publicly. And, and maybe God will do more in our hearts and our lives when we show up on a Sunday morning. I want you to uh, take your registration cards for just a minute and fill those out. <clears throat> and on the back, I'm going to have you answer this question. Number one, will you answer God's call to take the good news to all the world? That's yes or no. And number two, will you consider using Psalm 67 too, as a life verse for the next month or so that would send us around the world with the news of your saving power and your eternal plan for all mankind. That's just a yes or no. If you want that particular version, then that's the the living Bible. You can look that up on your uh, version or something like that. You can look it up on the internet. All right, we have three baskets at the back. One is our joy basket.